Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So welcome everyone back to another episode of Ivy League Murders. And we want to, before we start our episode, we want to thank a few people. We've been pushing our Buy Us A Coffee, which is a great way to show your support for Ivy League Murders. You go to buymeacoffee.com or the link is on our Facebook page. And for $5 or as many cups as you like, you can help support our podcast. And we had a few anonymous donors this week. And then we had a special donor who's my cousin, who Sarah, I never knew was such a true crime fan until we started this podcast. And he has been like one of our number one supporters. And he was extremely generous with us this week. And that's Justin. And that's Justin O'Leary. And he's also huge, huge advocate of law enforcement. So just want to give him a shout out. And this week's case, Sarah, is uh, we're kind of back to Cambridge. Cambridge and Boston. You know, we usually begin our episodes by telling you a brief history of the university, but we're back to Harvard because, as we know, most of our cases (laughs) take place at Harvard for whatever reason. And so this week we thought we would change it up a bit. And in this episode, we're going to be going back to the 1800s actually in the middle of the 19th century. And we also have the pleasure of collaborating with Zach DeBacco from Drinks with Great Minds in History. How you doing, Zach? Good, how are you ladies? Thanks for having me on, I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Let's just give a little bit of a background to the listeners about Boston during that time. Zach, can you kind of fill us in a little bit about what was going on in the middle of the uh, 19th century? I can do my very best. You know, when you guys said that, that lovely ladies, UK, if I say guys, force of habit, I guess. But um, when, when, you, when you both asked me, uh, you know, if I could walk you through what it might be like to be a 19th century Bostonian kind of walking down the street, it instantaneously reminded me of one of like my students' questions that I could have no way of really knowing because I've only been to Boston once and it wasn't in the 19th century. But um, the reality is, I kind of, as a teacher, you learn to kind of think, well, what do I know and how does it apply? You know, some things that came to mind, uh, you know, for me, is just like, what would it be like to walk down 19th century Boston? Kerosene lit streets, cobblestone brick roads, carriages everywhere. Boston is like a city on a hill, and it seems like it's a city on many hills, is it not? It is, uh, yeah. Yes. And it seems like each hill thinks they're better than the other hills, but I'm getting <laughs> from, from our conversations. To me, that was only part of it, the physical what you see. And I kind of tried to look up some pictures of it, and you can see picturesque scenes of people on hillsides looking at the seascape as ships pour into one of the busiest ports still in the United States. You would see that, but also I kind of thought, what do I know about the 19th century world in the United States? And 
we as a country were entering into the industrial age more and more, and cities were becoming taller. Cities were becoming fuller. And one of the main reasons, of course, was for immigration, which I know is something you want to talk about later. Uh, but every city had similar problems that they had to address in the early 1900s that were brought on in the mid to late 1800s, tenement houses filled with the urban poor suffering from disease and sickness. So walking down the streets of Boston probably wouldn't have smelled too great in the 1800s. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been full, depending on what street you walked down, of uh, the poor and in many ways the suffering, the laborers and the immigrants. But not the people we're talking about today, I don't much think. so. Which brings us to talk about some terms we thought we might familiarize the listeners with, because if you're from steerage class like my ancestors, you may not be familiar with the Boston Brahmin, which is something we're going to be talking about in this episode. So we actually have one of our own here. So <laughs> our own Boston Brahmin. So I'm going to let Sarah explain to you, the listener, a little bit about what it means to be a Boston Brahmin. It was a phrase that was termed, it was coined basically by the Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And it really is kind of Boston's most elite members. A lot of them are associated with Ivy League, if not Harvard itself. I am a Boston Brahmin on my mother's side, purely Irish potato farmer on my dad's side, but that's, that's another matter. A mixing um, of the social classes so, there. So I really <laughs> straddle this particular episode and you'll see why. The term Brahmin was actually taken by the English from the Indian. The Brahmin were like the higher, in the caste system, the Brahmin were the higher caste, basically. And so... Our subject today is Dr. George Parkman, and he was definitely a Brahmin. He was from one of Boston's wealthiest and most influential families. He went to Harvard, and he was, in fact, Harvard's single largest donor at the time. And Parkman became a prominent doctor, a philanthropist, and a landowner. He actually specialized in mental health, and that was because of his own family's history, I, I guess, from what I could gather. Parkman was a very distinctive figure in Boston. He was tall and thin, and he walked with his hands sort of clasped behind his back. And he had this prominent chin that he jutted out as he walked. And it also his reputation preceded him. Parkman was very wealthy, and he was also a notoriously thrifty guy. He refused to employ any more people than was necessary. He went around and he collected rents on his own properties, and he wouldn't even pay the expense of a horse, which was the only mode of transportation at the time. But he was also generous to people who needed it, and he didn't charge his patients who couldn't afford basically his house calls. Kind of picture him as being kind of a grumpy Robin Hood in some ways. He's yeah, kind of a slumlord in a lot of ways. I picture Ebenezer Scrooge, and I mean like Mickey Mouse Disney version, Ebenezer Scrooge right, right? around. And then in the end, he has his nicer sides for certain people, but I just feel like he wanted to be successful in himself. I Yeah, um, and, and that particular combination of like super wealthy and super like thrifty mm. is such yeah. a New England kind of thing. I think that's what Dr. Parkman <laughs> was all about. The times too, so the, if you don't mind me chiming in, one of the things at the time is that you were supposed to be a social Darwinist in the mid to late 1800s, a, a person who only the survival of the fittest, the rich, the powerful survive, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, Parkman's just a smaller version of those people. He wasn't that rich, but he owned land in Ohio, uh, in Michigan, I believe I read, all over the United States. So he was a wealthy landowner, not just in New England, but kind of like 
he had investments elsewhere. So he's a pretty big name there. But one thing that stood out to me about Parkman is that when he finished his degree, like many people did in the United States, they traveled to Europe to see what Europeans were doing. And he brought up the mental health. And I thought it was really interesting. He didn't go to the regular hospitals and stuff. He spent most of his time visiting mental institutions and asylums, which I thought was so cool about him as a character, uh, even though he's not going to be kind of the character of the story from what I've gathered in a certain sense. They generally call those gentlemen's tours. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's what the, you know, the upper classes did when they graduated from these schools. They went on a gentleman's tour of Europe and it's true. He didn't go and visit castles <laughs> and casinos and Monte Carlo. He was he was at asylums and looking yeah. at different ways to treat mental health that were really cool. revolutionary at the time. Yeah, because psychology as a field even is like starting to creep in at this moment right. in time. And it's so crude. And Dr. Parkman, to get back to the case, Dr. Parkman was a, a fastidious man. And when he didn't return home on Friday, November 23rd, 1849, initially it was thought that he was delayed on his daily rounds. And, you know, it was a little bit different back then, Sarah, right? I mean, we're talking about before the telephone. If you were late, you could take some time for someone to get a note to your home or to send a messenger. So it really wasn't until the next day when Parkman still hadn't returned that alarm bells kind of began to go off and Boston authorities were brought in. So where was Parkman? This was kind of irregular. And police started their inquiries and they were pretty baffled. Parkman, who was quite thrifty, had left a head of lettuce he had purchased behind at a, a small retailer, and he had asked him to just hold on to it for a few hours, and he'd be back to pick it up. And yeah, this was and this quite was, out of character. It was quite out of character, and this was a real, a fresh head of lettuce was a real luxury in Boston in November to get this. So this was not like Parkman to leave something like this behind. Yeah, you, you can't mean, just go to Walmart and get a head of lettuce anytime exactly. you want. I, I like, Why is that such a luxury? Like, Who cares? But right, I you, it now. it's the winter, yes. Right. You, you, when Sarah said that to me, it took me a minute to even kind of get into that reality. The wild, it just seemed like he had kind of vanished into thin air. And there was all kinds of speculation as to what happened to him. And in the, the course of their inquiries, they found out that he had had a one thirty afternoon appointment with somebody. But no one could tell the police who that appointment was with, basically. So there was wild speculation. When Dr. Parkman did not come home the next day, there was all kinds of speculation. And some of them were basically, you can talk about this a little bit too, Zach. The Irish immigrants were the first suspects yeah. in this. You know, it yeah. must have been somebody from that corner of Boston. The speculation about it was that Parkman had been robbed because he's going around and he's collecting rents. He's carrying around quite a lot of money that he had been robbed and murdered and thrown into the Charles. And in fact, the police even dragged the Charles River looking for him. Someone matching Parkman's description had been seen crossing the bridge from Boston to Cambridge in the company of kind of like this unsavory character, which means Irish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as you've said, there was a lot of tension between the native Bostonians and the influx of Irish immigrants at this time. And Zach, maybe you can speak to this. I mean, there were there were signs all over the place saying Irish need not apply. They did. And so can you tell us? a little bit about what was going on with the Irish influx in Boston? 
I sure can. So the Irish were actually uh, a member of the what historians call old immigrant group, northern Northwestern Europeans, some French, some English, but mainly Irish, Scots-Irish. They're coming over primarily for two reasons, coming over for work, the railroad, especially as railroads pop up everywhere, but the transcontinental railroad as we move through the 50s into the 60s, that's going to draw a lot of Irish over because there's a lot of available work. And about half the railroad was built by, uh, the transcontinental railroad was built by Irish immigrants. Uh, but the main reason that they're coming over is to escape famine. More than a million people had died in Ireland in the 1840s, about 1845 to 1849. Millions of people are dying, and it actually leads many Irish to leave the country and come to the United States. And this causes a massive influx of people specifically into Boston and other port cities on the northeastern coast, proximity and relation. Um, but I think your original question was, why was there such a resentment, such a disdain between the people who lived in the United States uh, at the time and the Irish that were coming over. And I think one reason is that it goes back to English and Irish relations. And many of these Brahmin families were the original English colonizers and settlers in the New England area. And their families could trace themselves way, 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 way back to the 1600s. But English and Irishmen, I don't know that they get along today that much, but uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I know that back then there were a lot of historical resentments still lingering. So when the Irish would have come over, these old English colonizing families would have probably seen themselves as above the Irish. But even on a larger scale, terms like nativism, this idea of kind of like America first and xenophobia, which is not a technical phobia in the you know psychological sense, but xenophobia, this irrational fear of other cultures coming into yours and causing some sort of melting pot identity that the Brahmin probably just didn't want. So what tends to happen is you see communities putting up these uh, no Irish need apply signs, say natural kind of segregation happening, not legal, but kind of natural. And when I talk about those tenements and the urban poor, uh, like you said, when we talk about these you know, people that you would just blame, they're the Irish uh, in this period. The urban poor are going to be, the people suffering are going to be uh, the Irish immigrants. And they would have been cast to the side, giving the worst jobs uh, and not really cared for uh, by the people around them, uh, mainly because of that resentment. But, you know, one interesting thing that might might fit in here, too, is uh, why Boston? And like I said, it's proximity. Why did, uh, you you know, any European is going to be very close to Boston. It's going to be the the quickest boat ride over. But the question often becomes uh, from my students, from people, why stay in Boston, especially if you're not having good living conditions uh, and if the people hate you there? Uh, And the answer is you can't afford to leave. All right. So uh, people would stay in Boston because that's all the further they could get. Uh, And then you would move maybe to the next city or the next city after that. But really, if you landed in Boston, New York, or whatever port you landed in, you weren't making it very far after that. Uh, And that's kind of like where where that fits. And and there's a natural caste uh, system developing just because of immigration. So and I did look this up too. at the time, Boston actually had its fair share of crime, like even violent crime, again, would have been in the poor neighborhoods and definitely not in like these Harvard circles that we're talking about. Right. And I think it's also important to say, and I think this is true today even, is that Cambridge is somewhat synonymous with Harvard. Mm-hmm. So Cambridge kind of has the power and control. I mean, the city. I get what you're saying. <laughs> they yeah. Are I mean, they kind of run, Harvard kind of runs Cambridge. They did then and they still do. Yeah. So it is kind of in our, in our story, a little synonymous. And we'll see that more as we go along. Back to Parkman. So they're conducting their investigation, you know, 
Parkman was last seen entering Harvard Medical School. And suspicion, of course, fell on the school's janitor, Ephraim Littlefield, since he lived in the school with his family. So Littlefield was kind of a gambler. He had procured bodies for the medical school. And this had cast Littlefield in a less than favorable light in the eyes of the police. He was, in their eyes, a gambling man, a peddler of flesh, and a body snatcher. So let's talk about body snatching, guys, because <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating... This is pretty interesting because medical schools needed cadavers to teach their students, and there was a shortage of cadavers. And in places like Boston, Boston, at the time, they were taking, were they unclaimed bodies, Zach? They were taking the Irish Catholics started to really object yeah, well, to this. Irish Catholics are going to like that anyway, because that's disrespecting the dead. There's no way around that. My grandmother would literally turn her eye at that. You know, she would, not be, happy. She would not be happy with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> She'd be like, I don't want to talk about that. But the, the reality is, I, if I was a guessing man, and I don't have a lot of proof on this, that the bodies they were snatching were probably bodies of the poor. Uh, and the poor would have been the Irish, which would mean that the people who just buried their loved ones were seeing their body, family's bodies snatched for research, which they didn't necessarily want to happen. One thing that I came across that was interesting is that the government of Boston, I believe, or Cambridge at least, had uh, actually passed a law that said you can, any unclaimed body in the prisons, you can have Harvard. You can just take them. And that was common, I think, in Europe and the United States. If there's an unclaimed body that of a man who was a disliked by society in the first place, uh, th then you can have it and use it for research, but that's not enough. They need more bodies, like you said. So these body snatchers, these grave robbers, they would kind of just take what they could find and get access to without getting in trouble. And I don't have any numbers or anything like that, but it was... It seemed common enough by the Harvard elite uh, that it was kind of enough to freak me out a little bit that they were taking that, that it was that common. They were getting a lot of bodies from New York, yes. actually. And so uh, about a year before the Parkman's disappearance, there was a woman who had, she was a victim of a botched abortion, basically a, a young woman. And so her body got procured by Littlefield. He brought it to Harvard Medical, but then the people doing the autopsy on the body, figured out what had happened to her and how sort of, quote, fresh the body was. And oh. um, they notified the authorities. And it was kind of a big scandal at the Harvard Medical School before. And they got kind of a bad reputation, even though they did the right thing. They notified the authorities mm -hmm. and didn't try to hide the fact that this young woman basically, but it was kind of a scandal ahead of this case that we're talking yeah, about right now. What I, I found interesting was, you know, a lot of the, this, the bodies were procured, it involved bribery. Mm. And so medical students at that time had to pay like a $5 fee. And it was really like a body snatching fee you had yeah. to pay as a medical student. That, like, it would have, $5 would have been a lot of money. Yeah. That would have been a lot of money in 1850, 49. Yeah. yeah. So you basically, that was a built-in fee at Harvard Medical was this fee that would go towards basically bribing people to get cadavers. That's right. And this sort of had all come out. It was kind of scandalous. There was definitely a spotlight on Harvard Medical School. But keep in mind, I mean, this is the last place that Parkman is seen going into 
you know, they put the spotlight on the janitor, Littlefield, and he was very, he was pretty cooperative with the police and that he told them, hey, look, I heard arguing that night. He sort of became less of a suspect and more of a witness at that point. And so the police went and they searched the medical school twice, actually. They're looking for evidence of foul play against Parkman, but this is, the Harvard Medical School is dealing in cadavers. So, (laughs) you know, you're talking about blood, you're talking about vials of blood, right. you're talking, you right. know, all the things that come along. It's with, like looking for a body in a funeral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a crime. Yes. Yeah, exactly. No suspicion in seeing blood, body parts, or tooth here and there. That's Especially right. in those days where I don't think they were quite as sanitary with the disposal. Well, I guarantee they weren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the whole point is like cadavers are coming and going out of mm-hmm. this institution. And the guy who was there, who was a colleague of Dr. Parkman, Dr. John Webster, he kind of cheerfully showed the police around. Again, they search it twice. And they also do find out that Parkman's 130 appointment, remember Parkman had that 130 afternoon appointment with somebody and they find out it's this guy Webster. So they talk to Webster and he says, yes, you know, I saw Dr. Parkman that day. He left. I haven't seen him since. No idea where he went. Good day, gentlemen. You know, of course, if I hear anything, I'll bring it right to you. And at the same time, the janitor Littlefield was suspicious. There's a couple of things. The day that he he had heard arguing coming from the lab, and he had also been locked out for several hours that same day, which was unusual because he was a janitor, he had a lot of cleanup duties and that kind of stuff. He also noticed that John Webster's behavior was really off as well. Webster was kind of like flush with like money and enthusiasm. And so what does he do, Laura? He offers to buy the Littlefields because the Littlefields like live in the basement of the medical lab. How eerie. They live in the basement of a cadaver-filled medical lab with their family. Yeah. But he offers to buy them a turkey. Yes. You know, because Thanksgiving is approaching and it's like from a really good purveyor, like food purveyor in Boston. And I think Littlefield kind of looked at this like, is this a payoff? from, Mm -hmm. you know, from this guy, Webster. And Webster's Brahmin, right? I mean, he's big Boston Brahmin. Yeah, I was going to... The Webster name alone is a New England name even I know. So yes, right. I was going to say let's let's talk a little bit about who Webster was. Sure. Let's let's talk. Yes, Webster was Brahmin, and he actually had inherited a lot of money, and at one time had lived in a mansion in Cambridge. He had gone to Harvard and Harvard Medical as well. He was Harvard Legacy. However, he had squandered his money and. You know, it was interesting that at the time, Harvard professors were not paid well. It was expected that it would be the elite teaching the elite. So they were expected to lead very elite lifestyles. So And just kind of be financially independent, basically. You know, be able to afford to teach at Harvard, basically. (laughs) I wish I could afford to teach at my school. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, once Webster had squashed, wandered through his inheritance and was stuck with just a smaller mansion in Cambridge. God, no. (laughs) He was left only with his Harvard salary and he was, had lived beyond his means so long. Just just to mention too, I'm sorry to cut you off, but a smaller mansion in Cambridge is probably worth like Six million. I am. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, to suffer. Right? Oh, yeah, to suffer like uh, that. Right. If we haven't mentioned it, we're from Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I think 
maybe to put it in historical perspective for everyone, these, these Brahmins, these elites, they're not people you've never heard of. They are people that every American knows. The Adams family would have been descendants of, the, of these Brahmins, the Lowell's, the Cabots. I mean, these names, they're big colonial history names. Uh, and the Brahmins aren't just run-of-the-mill people like George Parkman, who, unless you've heard of this case, you might not have heard of today. Uh, and you're, you'll hear more names as we go forward, like Choate, who established Choate Rosemary Hall. So you'll hear these names in this case, um, both literary, you know, and political names that were quite important names. And I won't get ahead of myself, but there's quite a few big names to come. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yes, yeah. So the janitor Littlefield is suspicious. And here's where we come to the kind of like Hitchcock part of this case. I love this. So it was the day after Thanksgiving and all the professors are gone. Webster's gone. Littlefield has a really bad feeling. He knows there's one place in the lab that has not been searched, and that's a privy that is kind of off of, I think it's off of Webster's like office. Is, is, uh, Which is like, to those who don't know, it's a toilet. But right. it's, it's a bathroom. Like an, like an, right. an old, an eight, you know, 1800s toilet. So it's kind of like a nice outhouse. Regularly, yes. <laughs> emptied but, into the Charles. Right, yeah. that's right. And But he's fearful that Webster is going to come back, even though the sort of, you know, think people have cleared out for the, for the holidays and everything like that. So what he does is he takes these tools and he starts breaking into the privy, which has lo- been locked. It's never been searched by the police. And he, but he tells his wife, hey, grab a hammer. If you see Webster coming back, hammer basically so that I could hear the hammer going so that I know to get out of there. And so he does, he breaks through the privy wall and he finds a human thigh. And so at this point, he freaks out and he goes and he finds a guy named Professor Bigelow. And he tells Bigelow, who's immediately suspicious, once again, of Littlefield himself. I just find this so interesting because you do, I mean, we often talk about kind of the town and gown thing. And in this case, it's a little town and town, but you see it here. I just, I love the way all these intellectuals think they're so much smarter than the janitor. And then like, they all go home for Thanksgiving and like the janitor's got the intuition that nobody else has and he discovers the body. So it's like town one. Down zero. He discovers a part of a body. Right. But he he discovers a human thigh. Right. They're not sure it's Parkman, by the way, but all they know is that a body part does not belong. Right. They know in this privy. Right. There's no reason that there would be remains in the privy. So they do know that. So obviously, you know, we have a missing person and we have, you know, a body found. So. The police put two and two together and the rest isn't very hard for them to pull together when they start to look at Webster's debt. Let's just back up a little bit. So the police come in and they search again, basically. And what they not only find the thigh, they also find in a really weird place, like in a box where it shouldn't belong, a human torso. And it has a thigh, a human thigh stuck in the middle of the torso. Is this like the creepiest office building ever? 
Yeah. For, for Halloween. Uh, I know there's like bodies in the toilet and like thighs in the closet. Uh, awful, awful. All they know is that, and they ask Littlefield about it. Hey, look, this, they don't know. They're like, do body parts belong in the places that we're finding them? And he's like, no, absolutely not. And so they eventually find, they're, they're still not sure it's Parkman. They have very, you know, they're very suspicious now of Webster. And he's the last person that saw Parkman that day. They are finding places that he had not disclosed to them. Basically, they conduct this ruse with Webster. And they, because also there's different jurisdictions. There's Cambridge and there's Boston. Webster lives in Cambridge. And so they go to Cambridge and they say to Webster, hey, you know, we just, we need to look at something else in the lab. Can you help us out? Webster goes with them and they are not going to the lab. They're trying to get him into the Boston jurisdiction mm -hmm. and the police say, hey, we have to stop by the police station and get something. And they arrest him basically in in boston the police had gone through a pretty big reform in this era the, the police had been like run by criminals for the past few decades and now all of a sudden <laughs> now they've completely like revamped and just made them regular cops all of a sudden so it seems like this this case is falling at a weird time where the police actually are capable of doing a job. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it appears they did quite a thorough job and they, you know, they look checked everyone out fairly and equally. However, when Webster was arrested, there was great uproar in the immigrant community and riots ensued. I mean, the police had to be brought in at Harvard Medical School, which actually, just so people understand the proximity, is not in Cambridge, it's in Boston, because they were so angry that one of the, you know, they had been blamed, the immigrant community had been blamed, and here it was one of their own who was actually the suspect. Exactly. There was some hinky stuff going on with Webster financially, too. They had discovered in conducting their investigation of Webster that he had, basically, he was this box of minerals, I guess, which was fairly valuable. And he had taken out loans on the promise of this box of minerals, but he had double dipped. He had used this valuable box of minerals. He was in debt. He was in hawk to a lot of people. And Parkman was one of them. I want to also get back to the fact that they still, in their searching of the building, they actually found a jawbone in the furnace. And in our research, what we found out, I thought was really interesting, was that they got Parkman's dentist to come in and identify the jaw given his very specific dental work because he had all these like fancy bridges very expensive dental work he had very bad teeth dr parkman did so they had fake teeth at this time were like i feel like they were basically made out of wood these weren't they were porcelain they had you know but where the missing teeth were and that kind of thing make a real identification to parkman yeah i heard this thing like parkman refused to give up the last three teeth that yeah were he laughed and that's what made it so identifiable distinctive yeah. exactly yes, yes, thank you yeah that's a yeah. way better word than identifiable <laughs> And I think it's it's kind of important as we kind of get 
ready to go into this trial and that's where we're at now. So Webster's been arrested and he's now choosing an attorney and he is actually turned down by several attorneys, um, including Choate, who is later going to establish Choate Rosemary Hall, which is a, a very exclusive boarding school if people who aren't familiar with it, because he would not accept his guilt. Mm -hmm. And he was encouraged to accept his guilt and take, you know, a self-defense plea or, or insanity. insanity. But many say due to, you know, his family, he insisted on his innocence. And interestingly enough, he had a great deal of support from the Brahmin, you know. I mean, it's actually easier to find a nice thing said about him than about Parkman. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting that even Longfellow's wife was writing in and, you know, so in support of Webster and the, the dean of Harvard said never could a Harvard man commit such an act. That's right. And that does go back to your point, Laura, about this case in Boston and actually kind of the nation, I think, was crazy. The press went crazy with this. And in fact, the Boston Herald even published pictures, like pretty gruesome pictures of the body parts that were found. And these became so valuable that people would actually swipe the newspapers off of other people's doorsteps to resell them. There was such a fascination, I think, with this case, mm -hmm. but also a lot of anger, again, by poor, mostly Irish immigrants who felt like they had been unfairly targeted because there was no conception that one of their own, one of Harvard's own, could have killed the other. It's interesting that you brought up the, the kind of celebrity status of this trial because we talked about how news traveled slowly. We brought this whole sto picturesque story of 19th century Boston, no telephones, but they did have the telegraph. So news could have traveled from Boston to other major cities fast enough that it could get this kind of like notoriety in sure. that but it's not like at the tip of your fingers it's like a, at least within the tip of your, a few days i guess is the, you know the the information could spread not to rural communities but you're right cities from all over the world looking at this i'm sure like how could the wealthy educated civilized elite ever commit such a heinous act and i think that's exactly what you're trying to say. It was quite shocking. And I mean, we see Dickens, you know, I think it was several years later on his trip to the United States, his first stop is at Boston. And the first place he wants to go is to Harvard Medical School. So I mean, this really is reaching across the pond mm. and fascinating. And it's also happening. And maybe you can speak to this a little bit about kind of what's happening literary with literature. This is kind of like a literary renaissance we're having here at this time. And play in Boston. I mean, I don't know all of the people at Longfellow's there, right? And uh, Melville is there. Well, too. Melville. Melville's father-in-law is actually the judge. Oh, okay. That's Mel his father-in-law. Yeah, father father never shows up for anything. He, 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 right? he, was, he was kind of like the celebrity everybody was like waiting for who never showed up. Mm, yeah, um, <laughs> but Emerson, Longfellow, Louise May Alcott, Thoreau, oh, yeah, yeah. Hawthorne. Yeah. And it's not surprising uh, that this news would travel across the pond because, you know, I talked to you, you ladies about this, this idea of the Boston Brahmin, you know, they're centered in the Somerset Club in, I think, Boston or Cambridge or wherever it is. You know, I've come to see them as not atypical. They're not uncommon, but like more archetypal. The Brahmins, they're just Boston's version of the Knickerbocker Club in New York. And they had their brother clubs in Paris, Rome, exactly. London. So, and I mean, other clubs like 
regular communication. If you were from London coming to New York and you had a connection to a club in London, you would go to a club in New York. You right. Know? Uh, and whether it's you know the literary movement in uh, with Longfellow and all of them in Boston or. Washington Irving in New York City. You, you know, these clubs are like where, I don't know if it's the clubs draw in the literary figures or the literary figures make the clubs, but I think you're totally right that it, this literary scene, the Boston Brahmin emerges out of that, I think, in a way. And they put on, like, Boston went crazy when Dickens came cool. here as well. He was like a megastar, you know? Right, and yeah. we forget okay, today, yeah. you know, in the age of movies and celebrities that these writers were celebrities of their day, you know? So, they are, yeah. you know, we forget that today because we really don't put authors in the same esteem except for a few i mean these people would be like jk rowling level you know like yes yeah. we're talking like every household names you know these books would have been read and still are read by everybody and, most of them are high school curriculums and in fact charles dickens last novel is it's called the mystery of edwin drood drood right? yes and it's loosely based on this case basically oh, wow. he died in 1870 he was unable to finish it actually download it i'm gonna listen to it because i love it another little factoid i'll have to share is during this time you know it was you know and this was one of the things with webster was being insolvent would almost be a reason to lose your job would be very bad and hawthorne was going through a very difficult time so emerson was passing a basket for hawthorne around the time of the trial and he was getting ready to publish a book and that book was the scarlet letter Wow, wow, wow. So there's yeah, really a lot of... one of my favorite classic books. And that. Longfellow wrote all about this trial in his journals, which are kept in Harvard, and you can see them. That's right. But we'll get back to the case. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, and part of the trial, I mean, speaking of sort of town and gown once again, Webster and his brother-in-law, they try to frame Littlefield for the crime. Yeah, I mean, they, it's, it's part of the defense. It's, it's like they're trying they to like, point frame. fingers at him. I, I That's right. Yeah. I mean, he's an easy scapegoat and they, you know, they really don't have much of a defense. So their mm -hmm. defense is, this is a building full of cadavers. And if it is him, it was him. Right. <laughs> right. Or if it's not, it's, it's a, you know, a, a body amongst bodies. Get over it. We didn't know. We don't, yeah. There was a $3,000 reward for any information about Parkman and Littlefield actually got that money for right. helping them out. Which is over 100000 today. Which is a king's ransom. The case and the trial, one thing that you said that stood out to me is Webster was in, indebted to people. He was on the fringe of not being able to support his career at Harvard, meaning he couldn't support himself. And if anything, to me, that says motive for murder. You know, so, and I don't know, was he indebted to Parkman? Oh, he it, was. He was. Um, Parkman was one of the people he was indebted to. So yeah. that was, he was, yeah, so, he was okay. just wildly spending beyond his means, basically, and beyond his professor's salary, basically. And at that time, being in debt would be a reason for you to lose your job. Mm -hmm. You could actually lose your job if you were proven to be in debt. They could bring that thank, up to the Thank floor. God those times are yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'd so be in debtor's prison oh, right yeah. now. <laughs> today you have to have an immeasurable amount of debt to have a job. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> that's how it works. And so Webster finally confesses 
basically. He has sort of like a come to Jesus moment and he... Well, that comes a little bit later. And, um, you know, Lemuel Shaw, who is Melville's father-in-law, is is the judge. And the prosecution puts on a, a very good case. And, and now this is truly a Harvard case. I mean, I found this very, very amusing that on both sides, the defense and the prosecution... Everybody but one person went to Harvard, mm. and the one that didn't go to Harvard went to Brown. Which, <laughs> um, so this was Ivy League all the way. But this was the first time ever that forensic odontology had ever been used, and this case really was, uh, you know, really very, very much of a revolutionary case legally because forensic odontology had never been used in a trial before. So that is the study of dentistry. So they had uh, the actual, the founder of Harvard Dental who came in and testified about the very specific bridge work he had. And, you know, now that's commonplace that we ID people with dental work, but at the time it wasn't. Hartman hadn't had such weird dentures. It wouldn't have even worked, right? I mean, I think he would have gotten away with it if he didn't have such weird dentures. It's true. And, but it was actually the first time too that somebody was convicted of murder without a body, what's called a corpus delecti. Mm -hmm. So even though there were body parts, the forensic odontologist, the dental expert, was key in identifying that that was Parkman. That was the first time in legal history that somebody had been convicted without a whole body. And all of these experts and they're all callings. I mean, today this would never be allowed because everybody, you know, the everybody was so connected to each other and to Harvard. I mean, they're all very conflicted. So many conflicts of interest here, but it was allowed then. So Webster mounts a defense, basically blaming Littlefield, saying it's not Parkman. It's relatively ineffective. Nobody really believes him, although people in Cambridge and a lot of the Harvard and Brahmin set continue to just have a disbelief that anyone of his breeding could have committed such a terrible act. And I mean, it's speculated that perhaps he would never confess to the crime um, during the trial to save face with his family. And we know how important the family names were. So he professed his innocence throughout the trial and he was found guilty. And then there was a lot of speculation about how he would be punished. And nobody thought that they would ever send a Harvard medical doctor to the gallows. No, absolutely. I mean, that couldn't happen. And Judge Shaw had absolutely no problem doing it. He sentenced him to death by the gallows. I do think, and I'm not sure if we've made this clear, but there was a real, oftentimes in Ivy League murders, we have a town-gown kind of dispute. Well, in this case, it's town-town because Cambridge was fully behind Dr. Webster. Mm -hmm. Boston thought he was guilty of sin and should hang. It divided down by class, but it Mm -hmm. also divided by town. Cambridge sided with Webster. Boston absolutely did not. Yeah, I I think it might be better said because for those of us not from Boston, you know, Boston and Cambridge, to me, they're virtually the same thing, but Boston Brahmin, it's it's almost not the right name for them because they're more Cambridge Brahmin. They're more Harvard Brahmin. They are Boston sure. Brahmin from an outside perspective, but they, they, they might be Bostonians to us, but to you guys, you it kind of seems like you've made the distinction between them. And these yeah. people, I think, were blindly loyal to their own because 
their existence, their survival, much like monarchies of Europe in this period, it, it, it is necessary that people believe that they're elite. So they have to kind of support their own elite status. And to understand why the Brahmin would stand behind them, I, that's something I've grappled with in my research for this. When you, guys, when you two asked me to look into the Brahmin, I tried to understand the nature. And one adage, one Brahmin proverb kept coming up that just stood, stood out to me as to how these people could be so loyal to Webster, even though it seems like he really did commit a crime, even though he won't confess, and why he won't confess just to save his family's name. And this, I don't know if you came across it, but it's, it was said by a Brahmin about the Brahmins. And it was, and this is good old Boston, the home of being in Cod, where Laos talk only to Cabots, and Cabots talk only to God. <laughs> and I across that, but the Cabot's descendants of old English minister families right. from colonial days, the Laos are going to be early industrialists. And what it's basically saying is, if you're not a name, if you're not a family, forget you. But if you are a family, we got you. You know, it's almost mafioso in a way, uh, you know. Uh, so that just stood out to me because in sitting here trying to grapple with that, I just couldn't figure out why would these people who don't have a reason to care about Webster care to defend Webster's honor, name, and legacy because they're defending themselves. It, it's really true. It, it's something we come up against in mm -hmm. a lot of our Ivy League cases, too, even to this day, where someone from the vaulted halls of Ivy League will commit a hideous crime, and they're, then they kind of get like surrounded by the intel intelligentsia who sort of in a weird way protect them excuse them no the headline there's no how could a brilliant person like this commit yes. a crime that's right right and that that's at the core of our podcast actually yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that central that question you know and I think they're defending themselves if one brahmin commits a crime are all brahmins capable of such evil such heinous acts you know i think yeah. that's for me what it is because uh, I really grappled with this in, in looking at this case for the show. One thing we say in our trailer is, you know, and we talk about a lot in Ivy League murders, is there's this real thought that if I send my kids to the right school, if I live in the right city, I'm going to really be protected from a certain element of life. And I think that one of the reasons that people stand behind their own is they really don't want to believe that that's not true and that you could be sitting next to somebody who might kill you in like Harvard Medical School. Like that kind of human nature it doesn't, that crosses all socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so does. You can't just blame the Irish, all right? right. <laughs> okay. <That's> right. <laughs> Although they did quite a bit. Of <laughs> I'm a McDonald. I can say that about the. But, um, get to the confession. Well, I'll get Laura. to the confession. So he's found guilty and he's facing the gallows and he has exercised all of his appeals. And you know, he's from money. So he has a lot of appeals. None of them have worked. And he finally confesses. And he confesses to George Putnam. He confesses to Reverend George Putnam, who That's is right. very well known because, of course, you can't just confess to any old person. He has to confess to some... If you're a Brahmin, right, you've got to confess to somebody quite famous. And that's what he does. And and then we really find out. And, and what he says happens is that he did. He owed Parkman money and Parkman threatened to go to Harvard and tell Harvard that he owed him money and, and have his job taken from him. And Parkman almost got him his job in the beginning. You he know? helped. He yeah. held, he wrote a recommendation letter for him. Yeah, and he's like carrot and sticking him. Like, you better pay me or 
else. Right. I got you this job and you will lose this job because of me. And in a fit of rage, he hit him. And I think that the part that, I mean, I'm not a believer in capital punishment, but he very easily could have avoided the gallows if he had admitted that early on and said this was a crime of passion or self-defense, but he wouldn't do that. So that- The family name, that was it, you know, can't plead guilty. In the end, I know he did, like you just said, but- I'm sure his family had complete denial over that because he pled not guilty at trial. He never confessed at trial. And, you know, a little caveat, which is shows that there was, you know, and I, I don't believe that Webster was some type of an evil man. I think that he was a desperate, scared man who kind of flipped out. You know, he asked to see Littlefield before he before his execution and he apologized to him, which I found kind of moving. I don't know how speculative we are on this show, but I just don't buy it with Webster. I think he's a little shadier than people give him credit for. You think so? No, no real reason to believe. It might be the booze. I don't know. But <laughs> I just, it's a product of opportunity. I don't think he wanted to kill Parkman. But then again, the next source that I listen to or hear or read, it says Webster uh, confesses to hitting him once and Parkman died. But the evidence of the body doesn't really seem to show that somebody was only hit once. And then beyond that, he cut him up. Somebody, to cut someone up, I feel like you should be pretty comfortable with death. And I, with all the cadavers coming out, I get this vibe that maybe Webster was like hoping that it would just be, oh, another body going through camera. Oh, I definitely think that was his plan for I sure. I think he, I think he, I mean, he bludgeons him with this, you know, no, I think it was a log of some sort. Yeah, is that, is that right? some, some some piece of wood. Some, a yeah, piece yeah. of wood. And I, I and I think he was going to hide the parts of Parkman all around and just kind of process it through what a perfect alibi, right? But I, like yeah. process it through the autopsy room. Of course there's a yeah. leg through my in, in Harvard. Why wouldn't there be a random leg? We're doing autopsies, you know? Yeah, that's right. I just want to say like this is just so creepy to me how medicine used to be. Yeah. I mean, it's we've really come a long way. <laughs> 19th century murder is creepier just by default. I think we picture it in black and white. I think we picture it in these people who murder wasn't common. There was no SVU back then. There was no law and order shows. It wasn't like in everybody's lives. You know, it was like if you heard about a murder, you were probably never going to hear another one in your life again. It wasn't uh, a genre. No. no, not at all. Dickens and Longfellow and Washington Irving, they're not writing about murders because that wasn't, a th if it was a thing, it was a thing of myth. You know, it's not a thing of, it's a thing of rare occurrence. The Scarlet Letter, even, you know, uh, that was more the scandal of the day. Perfect example. That's the kind of thing you would write about, not brutal slayings and hacking people up like Webster did. Just my thoughts. Uh, <laughs> No, you're, no I, I think you're right. And I think that that's obviously probably why we're still talking about this case all these years later. And then when you see, you know, you, you definitely don't expect to see that from a, a Harvard medical doctor to cut up another Harvard medical doctor. Well, I mean, all right, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, though, because you've got Edgar Allan Poe pretty quickly after this. You do have this kind of fact and you do have the Victorian fascination with the macabre too. That was very alive and well at the time. So yeah, 
I, I don't think murder murders like this were commonplace. Um, but you know what makes this murder so unusual is the victim and the perpetrator at that time, because there was violent crime in Boston. At least there oh, was, yeah. you know, in, in London, Jack the Ripper's not so long after this, no. maybe, you know, a few years, but. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a standout kind this of This is case. a standout. I mean, if Littlefield had... High society scandal right here. And people love high society scandal. Exactly. That's what it is. I mean, it's hard to imagine that now, but this was just kind of like a celebrity case, um, you know, who was going to show up wearing what of the day mm-hmm. and in the 1850s. And that, that's pretty interesting. Right. right. Yeah. Will Her- I mean, the question was like, will Herman Melville show up? I remember one author, I, it was just <laughs> something about this trial just because I wanted to have an idea of what was going on. And it was like, you know, even historians reading this are like, will Melville show up? Did Melville show up in the background just in disguise? And it's, no, Melville just doesn't show up you, yeah. you know, because he's a massive Moby Dick about it, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> can it get any cornier than that? I don't know. That's good. That's, that's a good, that's good. I know, I, I think that the, the Melville sightings, you know. Right, but- Mel- so Melville is like probably like the least interesting person to me from my college courses, but- what? I love Moby Dick. But, um, so like a Melville sighting is just not like a Brad Pitt sighting, that but at the like day it was. Well, you know, Melville sounds like you'd call somebody like an insult, like you're such a Melville. I don't. (laughs) Well, if I call you a Melville, it might be an insult. (laughs) Well, so this has been really fantastic. Absolutely. Just kind of casual and fun. I thought this would be like a cool case that we could all talk about Mm -hmm. some history, some murder, some creepiness. And yeah, Zach, we want to play your trailer. Oh, and let everyone know to listen to your podcast. It's absolutely fine. I mean, it's really, it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's like a witty history podcast. You, Zach, you are a great storyteller. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so are you too. And um, your Facebook group is like off the hook. I, I, mean, I try my best with the Facebook group. Social media is exhausting. Uh, but, I mean, <laughs> I have friends who are like, my friends, a lot of my friends are teachers or yeah, I, I yeah. our friends who are like addicted to your Facebook group and wow. your podcast. And well, it's so much I, fun. I have a philosophy. True crime's easy to get like hooked on because it's it's juicy but history everybody always says i hate history or i love history and people mm-hmm. hate history just had a bad experience with it i people don't like history to be fun for some reason and history is should be fun and that's i'm, I'm glad that you two uh, think that it is that i do it that way in the show because that's what i want it to be my want my show to be history fun and my other love booze uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just for all the ladies out there who can't see zach and maybe you see zach's pictures but zach's a total cutie pie oh, so, total hottie <laughs> like he, i know but like he's like the imagine if he was your high school teacher oh my god i uh, know my high school teachers didn't <laughs> no we, we know we have female listeners for teachers Hot for teacher. (laughs) So we're going to play Zach's trailer now. And thanks again, Zach. Yes, absolutely. For for being on Ivy League Murders this week. And stay safe and stay curious. That's right. Hello, great minds. Mr. DGMH here. But wait, what the hell is DGMH? 
DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. Here we're talking about the men, the women, the minds that shaped and drove our shared history, as we examine the history and psychology behind every great mind we cover while we enjoy, review, and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. But no great is so great that they escape the piece of shit curve. Plus, every month or saga ends with a battle for the crown of greatness on shots heard around the world to decide who left the biggest historical footprint. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more. And if you couldn't tell from the title, we do a few shots. From Hernan Cortez to Joseph Stalin, Christopher Columbus to Catherine the Great, to a cast of characters in the margins, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers!